And I want to speak to uh, fellows for the next few moments uh, today, but it, it's broader. I do want to say this on the front edge. Uh, this talk that I, by the way, feel a, a stream amount of passion about today, speaking to the men, to the dads of our church. I also know that it's applicable to everybody that is here. In, in fact, it it's, fits in with what you know, we've been looking at from James, this continuation of this series that we've been doing on Faith at Words, but it's so applicable to, to men today especially, but to all of us, and I just want you to stay fully dialed in uh, for the next several minutes. Uh, to sort of get us into this talk, um, I want to just sort of paint an analogy, just give you a story, and, and then we're going to jump on in uh, to it. Uh, a lot of you know that here not too long ago, three weeks or so ago now, I think it's been, I had uh, traveled out of state to do a wedding that I had committed to a long, long, long time ago to a family that I've known for many, many years. Well, knowing that I would be coming back and having to have a layover uh, in Atlanta, well, I just got to thinking, well, I'm going to extend that rather than catch the next flight or try to get on the next flight. I'll just spend a lot of time with my family and and have my sister carry me back to the airport, brother-in-law, which they did, catch the flight, last flight out. So the reason I want to mention that um, is I was, I was flying standby, and that's how most of the time I, f- I fly. If I have real tight deadlines or things that I cannot, you know, I've got to be there at a certain time, then I don't fly standby. But, uh, and the reason why I do is my stepdad, who I'll talk to later today, is a retired Delta Airlines employee. So economically, it made sense for me to fly. I like the airline anyhow, but it made sense for me from a financial standpoint to fly them as often as I can. Now, here's the problem. Here's the angst that I feel anytime, though, that I fly is because when you're in standby, you never know if you actually have a seat assignment. You got to wait. And the reason I wanted to mention that is next time that you go to the airport to catch a flight wherever you're going, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Check it out because this is so obvious. Uh, Don't just, you know, sit in a seat somewhere and just, you know, isolate yourself. Just take a few moments to see if this is not true and just start looking around that gate area and see if you cannot, with a discernible mind, find out just by observation who are the people who are flying standby and who are the people who have a boarding pass or a seat assignment. It is so obvious. You know, uh, I've seen this so many times. Uh, in, in fact, I was on this flight coming back one leg of the flight, and I was saying, oh, man, I'm never going to get on this flight. This flight is going to be too full. I was looking at the screen, and then, you know, there was like one seat left, but then, you know, there was a, a pilot with the airlines that I knew that, you know, he had greater rank certainly than I did. And so this guy said to me, he said, man, I know you want to get back home, and so here's what I'll do. There's just one seat. Uh, I'll just fly in the jump seat up front in the cockpit so you can. And I'm like, man, I was so grateful for this very, very nice uh, pilot. But you just check it out and you'll see those who have standby because they're pacing. They're going up to the ticket counter every now and then. They're looking at the screens and seeing, all right, that's number of seats where I fit on the list. And then the people that are already, you know, seat assignment, uh, boarding pass, these are the people, they're sitting down, they're looking at a magazine, they're listening to music, they're talking to a friend, they're in total relaxed mode. Some of them are sound asleep, slobbering all over themselves. I mean, they're, they've got a ticket, they've got a boarding pass, they've got a seat assignment. 
Now, there's a lot of times that people approach life that way, and there are people who, not because of who they are, but the confidence that they have in their relationship with Christ, they know that they have a boarding pass. They know that they have a seat assignment. They know that when, at the end of their life, a flight is about to board, and they're going to fly into eternity, they know of their security in Christ. They know that they're in right standing with God. There's a home for them in heaven. But it's obvious for those oftentimes who are not ready or who are not sure if they're ready. It's like the patience, like, I, I hope there's a seat for me. I hope some way, somehow, I'm going to make it at the end of time. I want you to pay close attention to our first verse of the day. It is not in James. We're going to go there in just a few moments. This one is actually in 1 John. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, and this is what it, what it says. I write this letter to you who believe in the Son of God so that you will know so that you will know that you have eternal life, so that you will know you, you've got a boarding pass, you've got a scene to some, and I want you to know that, that everything is going to be fine for you at the end of this life. Now, this morning, what I want to talk to you about is I want to talk to you about belief, or more concretely, I want to talk to you about having an authentic faith, because this is exactly what James is talking about in chapter 2. In fact, you're going to notice this, and I'll go ahead and give this up on the front edge. What James actually wants to do is he wants to dismantle this pretense of those who imagined that they had real faith, that they thought that they had a seat assignment, when they thought that they had a boarding pass, when in reality they, they did not. And he wants to dismantle that when there's no perceptible evidence to show that they really had a faith that was truly alive. So it's like imagining, it's like self-deception thinking that, that they have a real faith, that they have a, an active faith, that they have a saving faith, when in reality that that is not accurate at all. Now, a verse like this one can be easily connected to his thinking, but this, this is not James yet. This is actually Jesus. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, not everyone who calls me their Lord will get into the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody, this is Jesus, this is straight up Jesus. Not everybody who calls me their Lord is going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is advocating that for some people, their self-deception is going to land them in big trouble come judgment day. Because all of the while, and maybe it's true among some of you, maybe it's many of you that are here with us today, you think that you have a boarding pass, you think that you have a secure seat assignment, when in reality... That simply is not true. And I want us to look at this passage from chapter 2, and then we're going to dive in. It's longer than usual, so I want you to hang in here, and I'm going to go ahead and give you some relief on, you know, right now. I am not going to sort of teach this verse by verse, or we would be here a while, so I'm not going to do that. I know you're highly disappointed in that, but I want to just read the passage, and then I'm going to give you some observations, some evidences that you and I really do have a real and active and a live faith. Well, let's go to James 2. Look at verse 14, and I'm going to read down through 26. Follow along with me. Some portions of it I may have you read with me, all right? What good is it, my brothers, if a man, read these next four words with me, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, read this question with me, everybody. Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, 
if it is not accompanied by action, what's these two words? Is dead. It's dead. It's not alive. It's not real. It's not authentic. It's not saving faith. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. And then James says, you believe there's one God? Good. Really? You believe there's one God? Good. But then he adds this, but even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions was working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. He didn't just believe it. He actually went through with it. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. And then James says, you see that a person is justified, read the rest of this with me, by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now read this last verse, verse 26, everybody. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without deeds is dead. For James, and you have to get this, what he is saying essentially is that there are two kinds of faith. And I want you to hear this, and, and we're going to talk, and you're especially going to need to be fully engaged uh, with me for the next few moments. I know that there's things that will uh, try to grab for your attention. You may be hungry already, and you're thinking about lunch, so just push that aside for a moment. You may be thinking about work tomorrow. Well, now some of you are, and you were not thinking about it, and I apologize for that. But there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be grabbing for your attention, but I want you to really think through in, in very deep ways what we're going to be talking about. And you've got to understand this. You've got to see this right here, and that is James says there's basically two kinds of faith, and let's call the first one selective faith, selective faith. It is, it is not true faith. It is bogus faith, and he was writing a letter, and Christ's followers would certainly uh, be the recipients of his writings, but he was also addressing, and I'm not going get to get too technical here. Um, I'm just going to give you a brief overview, sort of condense it all down into a statement, but what he is writing uh, to these Christ followers, and he was addressing sort of an attitude that was prevailing among what was known as the antinomian party. And some of you are saying, antinomian, is that Democratic, Republic, Independent, is that like and forth? And the antinomian party, which basically said this, and it was an idea that said, once you were justified by faith, that basically you could do with your life whatever you wanted to. Now, there's a lot of complexity associated with it, but when you can condense it all down, the, the attitude of the antinomian party was this, once, you know, like I pray, once, you know, justified by faith, then I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life, selective faith. And James would just say, you know, faith without words is dead. You can't just say something. You can't just think that you've got a boarding pass. You can't just think that you've got a seat assignment and, and it not be true. When on, really, you don't even know if you're going to get on the flight or not. He further accentuates this when he gives an example, you know, because it's like people who say even today, I believe in God, I believe in God, I'm a good person, I believe in God, I believe in God. And, and look at the verse again. You saw it a moment ago, verse 19. Look at it again on the screen. James says this, you believe that there is one God? Good. He said, even the demons believe that. In fact, even the demons believe that and they shudder at it. 
So he is saying, the first kind of faith is this selective faith. It doesn't really have anything backing it up. It's what we're saying. Any of us can say we've got a boarding pass, but until you open your hand and really demonstrate that it really is a boarding pass, you may be flying standby. All right, there's a second kind of faith that he wants us to have this fundamental understanding of, and that is saving faith, saving faith. This, now, this is real faith. This is the kind of faith that is lived out in agreement with the teachings of Jesus and is evidenced in clearly discernible patterns. You see this, and, and that's what we're going to talk about for the next few moments. Is there tangible evidence that you and I really are Christians? I mean, can people really look at our lives, not what we're saying, not like the antinomian party who just said, okay, I say one thing, I do another. But is it true? Is there real evidence? It's not saying, now, again, there's no antinomian party that we would know of, but sort of the attitude, the prevailing attitude of that still is in existence today, and it shows up in statements like this. Here, here's one. Well, you know what? I was baptized as a child. Therefore, you know, everything's fine. I got a boarding pass. Baptized as a child. Now, the reality is you don't even remember that. The only way that you know that that happened is maybe your parents told you that you were uh, baptized as a child or dedicated as a child or you've seen a certificate or a photograph that lets you know that that happened. But if that's what you're putting your stock in, I'd be very, very careful about that. Or, or maybe you say, well, you know what? I was married in a church. You know, I could have got married anywhere, but I wanted to get married in a church. I wanted to be a Christian church. I wanted to be a Christian ceremony. And, uh, you know, we even used a real pastor, you know, for that. And, you know, but I was married in a church, and I'm basically living my life however I want to live it. But, you know, sort of hang your hat on that. And that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. Or something like this. I've had this kind of conversation with people again and again and again. And it goes something like this. Well, you know what? Now, way back there somewhere, I pray this prayer. Don't even remember the prayer. I haven't thought a lot about it since. I don't even, you know, it's not even like a prayer I've really made like a strong commitment to, but I did it, and therefore that certainly must put a seat assignment in my hand, a, a boarding pass, and I'm, I'm okay. And, and again, James would be talking about the differences between selective faith that is not true faith and saving faith that is real. Now, this question again, is there tangible evidence that shows up that we really are a Christian. There's four ways to know. If we had more time, we would go beyond four, but I want to give you four, and I want you to be sure you get these down. And as we walk through each one, I, I want all of you men to think about this. I want all of you dads to think about it, but I also want all of you ladies to think about it, all of you students to think about it too, because it is actually applicable for us all. Let me give you the first one. How do you really know? What is the tangible evidence that we really are a follower, a disciple of Jesus? Number one, you're going to know it because you're going to be incredibly grateful for what Jesus has done for you. You're going to have this immense gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. Now, I understand some of you are deep thinkers and, you know, you've studied passages before. And now we come to James chapter 2 and you're saying, well, you know, I've read something at some point in the Bible that says it, you know, differently. It doesn't quite jive with this. In fact, quite often people think that the writings of Paul and the writings of James are actually incompatible. And I'll give you an example of this. It's not on the screen. But this is the words of Paul, and this is out of Romans, out of Romans chapter 3, verse 28. This is what Paul said. He said, for we maintain that a person, listen to this now, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the words of the law. So Paul says a person is justified by faith apart from the words of the law. When you and I just saw here in verse 24, James saying, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by his faith alone. 
And a lot of people are saying, well, these guys are in conflict. Their theology, their teaching, their doctrine is in conflict. And I challenge you to do it. I don't have time to address it, and it'll get way too technical to do so this morning. It's not the focus of where we're going. But when you read the, the teachings and the writings of James in their totality, as well as the Apostle Paul and all that he says throughout the New Testament, you come to this understanding that they're really not, not in disagreement at all. It's actually not one or the other. It's actually both and. It's because you're a Christian, you are justified by faith, but because you are born again, you ought to want to do, and we'll address this in just a moment. It's like one group, and I'll just give you an example. One group might would say, well, you know what? I believe in God. I believe in the existence of God. You know, I haven't really made any kind of commitment. I just believe in, but I'm going to live my life, you know, on my terms. I believe in, in God and you know, but I'm, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. Another group may say, however, I do not necessarily need to receive Jesus at all or follow his teachings to get into heaven because here's what I believe is going to happen. I believe that my words and my good deeds are going to open the door of heaven for me. I believe God, you know, may not receive Jesus, may not pray to become a follower of Jesus, may not follow his teachings, but I'm going to do enough good words, and hopefully at the end of my life, my good words are going to outweigh my bad words, and that's going to secure me a seat on that flight. Now, let me go back because I said a lot of times people are thinking that there are contrary opinions between Paul and James when in actuality they are not. But I want to read the words of a New Testament scholar who said this. He said, for Paul as well as for James, saving faith means acceptance of the gospel and includes a personal commitment of Jesus Christ and to the mission. So it's, again, it's not one or the other. It is both am. We are justified by faith and really our faith and our salvation experience with Jesus ought to lead us to do good works. And some, some clarification on this, because I want you to be sure that you get this before we move on. Clarification. As a disciple, and you've got to hear this, and this is what I pray you have committed your life to. As a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I ought to lead the way in good works and actions that are going to make a difference in people's lives. We ought to lead the way. We ought to be out front. When there are those who are responding to crises, to needs, to the poor, tragedies and such, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Christ, you and I ought to lead the way in good works and activity that just spread the love of God. But at the same time, fundamentally, we must understand that these things are not going to be what's going to provide us with a ticket to heaven. They are not. You and I can do good deeds, we can do good works, we can do benevolent things all day long and think that that secures us a seat, a boarding pass, a seat assignment, when in actuality, that is not what does it. In fact, do you remember this verse from last week? The guys are going to put it back on the screen this week. This is Titus, and this is what it says. He saved us because of what? Because of... All right, I know there's more in here than what I'm hearing, okay? How many, of you, how many of you are still with me? Wave your hand like this. You're still with me. In case you don't understand, this is a rule we have around. A lot of our churches don't have this rule. We have it in our church. If at any point you see somebody that is nodding, let's take it beyond that. They're not even really paying attention. Here's what you have full permission to do. You smack them, but you have to do it in Jesus' name. If, if you just smack them, it's carnal, it's not good. But once you smack them, bring, just resurrect them right here in the theater. Just resurrect them, bring them back to life right here. And then when they wake up and say, what are you doing? Just say, in Jesus' name. That's all you got to do. All right, so let me try it again. How many of you are with me? Wave your hand. Okay, good, good, good. There's been a resurrection in this place already. So read Titus with me. Everybody now, everybody means everybody. He saved us because of his mercy and not because of any good things we've done. That's clear. We're not saved 
because of the good things that we have done, we're saved because of the mercy of God. In fact, let me say it this way. Our salvation has everything to do with the grace of God and our, not our own personal goodness. I can be good all day long. I can do good deeds. I can give money. I can help those in need. But if I'm not in a personal, vibrant relationship with Jesus, that is simply not enough. That does not secure me a seat on that flight. Our salvation has everything to do with His grace, not our goodness. Now, what kind of response should that provoke within us? Well, quite naturally, that should cause us to feel tremendous gratitude. Because it's like, you know that you're not a Christian because of anything that you have done or could ever do that causes you to become a Christian. You're you're a Christian simply because of the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. Another place in the Bible says, it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his grace that he has saved us, lavished his love upon us, even while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. So it has nothing to do with our good works. And when we come to this understanding, this has nothing to do with me. It's not about my goodness. It's about the grace of God that ought to create within us. It ought to prompt, provoke gratitude within us. You see, this is what I understand about our human condition. We are never grateful for things that we feel that we're entitled to. We're just not. We never feel gratitude if we feel we're entitled to something. If somebody gives us something we felt that it was due us, then we don't feel gratitude for that. It's things that we feel we don't deserve. I don't know how you feel about your life, but I want to I just say right here, right now, and, and say it, not proud of it, but I understand that, that I'm going to make it into heaven because of the grace of God and not because of a great person that I've been all of my life. I'm going to, you know, I want to be, and I'm going to talk about this, growing and all of this that all of us want to do, allowing God to shape our care, all of that, that is important. But every day, and maybe you want to pick up this practice in your own life, I try not to let a day go by. In fact, I've already done it this morning where I don't want to let a day go by when I don't just thank God, where I don't feel immense gratitude for God saving my hell-bound soul. And just saying, I'm so glad. And I think it's really one of the evidences that you know that you really are a follower of Jesus, that you do have a seat assignment, is when you're incredibly grateful for what Jesus has done for you. You know it's nothing about you. You didn't make it happen. You're not taking credit for it. You're not entitled to it. It's because of the mercy and grace of God that you're in the kingdom of God and you're a child of God and you know it's all because of grace, not your goodness. And you feel gratitude for that. All right, let me give you a second one. Be sure you get this next one. If you have, and if I have, real faith, then we're going to have a strong desire to grow spiritually. We just will. You're going to want to grow spiritually. You see, God's plan for your life and mine is to transform us to a greater place of Christ-likeness. Verse 26 here in chapter 2, look at this up on the screen. It's a very, very insightful verse. Verse 26, and it says this, anyone who doesn't breathe is what? is dead, and faith that doesn't do anything is what? Just as dead. So, I mean, the signs of life not being within a person are are obvious. It's evident. You know it. I've I've seen this as a pastor many, many times before. I've seen people uh, take their last breath. I've stood in hospital uh, rooms where somebody you just knew that was their last breath, and they were gone. And then there was no breath of life in them. And James is saying, if you say that you have faith, saving faith, but there's nothing in your life that is backing it up, don't kid yourself. Don't enter into self-deception. Your faith is dead. Your, your, your faith is as dead as a corpse that does not have the breath of life in it. Here's how we got to understand it. Living things, 
Let me take it beyond that. Healthy things by nature are going to grow. Living things, healthy things are going to grow. And if we're going to grow, then it is not a matter. And you got to be clear of this. And I've learned the hard way. If you're going to grow spiritually, it's not going to happen because you are trying harder. It is going to happen because you are training wiser. I've tried to do it. And have you ever, let me ask you this. Has this happened to you as well where you're like, I know I need to be a good Christian. I, I know that I need to grow spiritually. And so in order for that to happen, I'm just going to try harder to be a good Christian. And it's like the harder you try, uh, the more futile it is and the more fr- frustrated you become. It's not a matter. Listen, 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 listen. To grow spiritually, it is not about trying harder. You'll get real frustrated with that. It's about training, training wisely. And, and I'll just give you, give you a thinking that maybe you can tether the two together. Let's say, for example, and I know you're probably not thinking about this at 11.58 this Sunday morning, but let's say, for example, you decide that you want to run a marathon. I mean, seated, seated in that seat right there, you just say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run a marathon. How many of you know how far a marathon is? 26 point how many miles? 26.2 miles, all right? 26.2 miles is a marathon. Now, how are you going to run a marathon? Let's just, again, we're just, you know, creatively thinking. Let's say you decide you're going to do that. Um, what's the best way to approach that? I actually, before I had uh, knee surgery a year and a half or so, I was doing quite a lot of running up until that, that point. And at one point, I actually thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, you know, I love to run, so I'm going to run a marathon. And then I picked up a book, and I started reading about it because, you know, training. And, and then, you know, the deeper I got into that, the more I realized that running a marathon was not God's will for my life. I'm like, no, God, that's, that's not God. And, um, but if you say, say, for example, you say, well, I'm going to do that. You know, you may wimp out, but I'm going to run a marathon. And let me just say this. What do you think is going to help you to be more successful in that endeavor? Is it going to be for you to try harder or for you to train wisely to run a marathon? In fact, if you just say, you know what, I'm going to run a marathon. And by the way, Jeff, I've never run a day in my life, but I'm going to run a marathon. Hey, please call me up and let me know that. I want to see how that plays out. I really do. Because if you've never ran and you say, well, I'm just going to strike out and run a marathon. I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm just trying to speak the truth. You may find you're not even able to walk a marathon much less run it. So it's not trying hard. It's not like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Monday, you know, we do all good things on Mondays. We eat right. We exercise and, you know, until Monday goes by. And then we're going to do it Tuesday. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow. I never ran before. I'm going to run it. I don't recommend that. What you would want to do is what all marathon runners, as I read, again, it's not God's will for my life, but as all marathon runners will say, there are incremental improvements. There are things that you build up Two, it is not trying harder, it is training wisely. And that's what spiritual disciplines are. Spiritual disciplines, and you hear me talk about these, and I repeat them from time to time purposely because it, it is the pathway to spiritual growth. And our spiritual disciplines are the training exercises to give us power to live, and live life in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Our spiritual disciplines that we inculcate into our life, they are the training exercises to give us power to live in the kingdom of God here and now. Kingdom of God is not. You remember when Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. A lot of times we think the kingdom of God is there. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. And life in the kingdom of God is is what are the spiritual disciplines that are helping me to live and prove that I'm in the kingdom of God. 
What are the things that I'm doing to help me grow? And so uh, intentionally, I, I just keep reminding this from time to time, you got to get into the Bible. You got to read. How are you, you going to grow spiritually if you're not even feeding yourself? I mean, everybody, I suspect, will go home and eat lunch at some point today because, you know, you want to be healthy, physically speaking. But you're not going to be healthy, spiritually speaking, if you're never feeding. How many of you know this? If you take good stuff into your body, the reality is it's going to be good for your body. If you take negative stuff into your body, harmful stuff into your body, your, your body's not going to function the way it was intended. There's, there's going to be the potential for all kinds of abnormalities. It's sort of this idea of what do I put into my mind? If I put good things into my mind, good things are going to come out into my life. But if I put junk into my mind, bad things are going to come out. And so if you and I, one of the spiritual disciplines, if we're going to train wisely, well, just make sure that we're in the Bible consistently and, and praying or journaling, whatever works best for you. I was in conversation with somebody uh, yesterday at, at the gym, and it turned to prayer, and they were talking about how when they pray, they get distracted. And I'm like, hey, I'm the king of that. In fact, I learned a long time ago what I needed to do is write out my prayers because I found like, like if I got on my knees and I was just going to randomly start praying, here's what would happen. Here's what would happen. I would get so distracted, and I would typically remember everything that I had forgotten 24 hours prior to because my mind would just be pinging everywhere. And so for me, and that may not be true for you, I just started learning how to write out my prayers, and then I pray, and it keeps me very, very focused. Whatever you choose to do, you've got to choose what works for you, but prayer, journaling, Christian books that are going to help you to, go, to grow. Being in church. Being in church. I mean, how are you going to grow if you just have this haphazard, habitual commitment of, you know, I'm going to come to church unless something else is going on? That concerns me greatly from time to time, to be quite honest with you, that sort of the attitude of serious-minded Christ followers, otherwise serious-minded Christ followers, who just said, you know what, I'll go to church unless there's something else that happens to be happening, then I may or may not go. I picked up a book some time ago. It was written by Bill Hybels. It's called Simplify, and this is what he said. He said, church, attended was part, church attendance was part of Jesus' weekly rhythm. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and as the Scripture says, as was his custom. You'll see that in the Bible, in the New Testament, that Jesus went into the synagogue. He did it weekly, as was his custom. And then Hybels writes this, who do you want to become? If you have even the vaguest interest in becoming a more dialed-in Christ follower, someone who knows a little bit more about their faith, somebody who is becoming a little more like the one they claim to follow, then there are a few words you need to write on your calendar, and church is one of them. He says, if you want more of God's direction and purpose in your life, you need to adopt the same weekly rhythm that Jesus practiced. Church was on his calendar. And then he says, make it a non-negotiable part of your schedule. And these are, again, these are spiritual disciplines. These are helping us to train wisely for spiritual growth. Look at what Rick Warren has written. He said this, God's goal in all, that, in all the changes we make is that we become more and more like Christ. God's number one purpose in our lives is to make us more like Jesus Christ. It's to make us more like Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know the difference between a saving faith or selective faith, what is real and what is bogus? Well, one of the tangible evidences that we mentioned a moment ago is you're going to be incredibly grateful for what Jesus has done for you. Second thing is if you have real faith, you're going to have a strong desire to grow spiritually. Let me give you the third one now. If you are truly in the family of God, you're going to want to let other people know about God's amazing love. You're going to, how do you know? How do you know that what you have is a seat assignment and that you're not flying standby? You're, you're going to know because you're going to want to tell other people about God's amazing love. 
Now, this is what we do. This is what we do by nature. If you have really good news or you're really excited about something, here's what you and I always do. We are going to talk about it. We just are. We're excited about it. It's good news to us. We're going to talk about it. We're going to spread the word. Somebody says, well, you know what? I've got a new job. It's the job that I went to school for. It's the, God, it's the job that I was trained for. It's the job that I've had passion. It's the dream job. It's the job that I always wanted, and now I've got that job, and you have such excitement about it. It is such good news to your own ears. What are you going to do? You're going to go to so many people that you know and that knows you, and you're going to say, I've got this job. Can you believe it? I've got this job. It's in alignment with my gifts and my talents and my abilities and my passions. I've got the job. A guy's very excited because his wife has just had a baby and he's like going everywhere, spreading the word. Hey, my wife had a baby. I've got a little girl. I've got a little boy. I'm so excited. He's got to tell about that. Somebody has been saving, a couple has been saving up their money, you know, being a good steward and saving up their money. And now they're going to make a down payment on a house that they really like. And they do that. And the contracts are signed and they get into this house and they're going to want to let everybody know about this new house that they're in. They're excited. They can't hold it back. They're going to talk about it. A person says, you know what? I've waited for a long long, long time to get my pinto painted, and now I have, and it looks better than ever. They're really excited about that. Or a guy like, happened to me this week. I was in Chick-fil-A one morning this week. Actually, I was in Chick-fil-A six mornings this week, and I saw uh, a guy that I've not seen for a while struck up a conversation, and I, I asked him because I know he loves to fish. I said, hey, man, have you been out fishing lately? He said, have I? He said, I just got back from the Keys not too long ago. And he pulled out his phone. He said, you got to see this fish. And I thought, this is so funny. Ladies pull out pictures of their kids and grandkids and such. Guys, fish. And that's what we do. And, and so he's like, oh, man. And, and it was, it was an impressive fish. And he was, and I imagine that I was not the first person to see the picture of this great fish. Person just, you know, gets good news gets really good news or they're excited about something, they're going to want to let everybody know about it. Think about this now. The best news in the entire world is that God is love and that God loves everybody and people cannot earn God's love. The love of God can only be embraced. That, listen, friends, that is the greatest news on the face of the earth, that God is love. In fact, you know what the Bible says? The Bible does not say that God has love. The Bible says that God is love and God's love is the most irresistible force in all of the universe. It's the best news that has ever happened. And if you and I have authentic faith, if we have real faith, one of the evidences, one of the things going to be discernible and observable is that we're going to try to tell everybody we can about the love of God. We're going to want people to know it's just such great news. It has revolutionized our lives. It has changed us. And if we possess real faith, that's what we're going to do. It's what we want to do. Now, this is not our motivation this for doing so, but I will add it as a benefit that we will reap if we do what I've just been talking about. Look at this verse. This is Jesus now. This is Jesus in Matthew 10, 32, and this is what Jesus said. He says, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. So it's like Jesus is saying, every time you speak up for me, every time you tell people about my Father's love, the sacrifice I made for them, how much we love them, want to call them, every time you speak up for me on earth, you know what I'm doing? I'm speaking up for you in heaven. Every time you mention my name, every time you talk about my love, every time you talk about my sacrifice, every time you talk to somebody about a relationship with me, guess what I'm doing? I'm talking to the Father in heaven about you. You talk about me publicly on earth, 
I'll talk to you. I'll talk to the Father publicly in heaven. It's no secret I've got a couple of granddaughters that I'm just crazy, crazy about. One is two and a half. The other is six months old. Kinley's certainly were old enough to have conversations. And so I started this thing with her some time ago. And I do it from time to time because I never want to forget how much her papa loves her. So I say this to her. If she was here right now, she's in the 930 service. I could bring her up here and she would do it, I think. I'll say this to her. I'll say, Kinley, how much does your papa love you? And she'll say, this much. This much. Now, you got to understand, she's got some of that seller's DNA. And so every now and then, a spirit of, of aggravation comes over her or a spirit of sarcasm. And so from time to time, I'll say, how much does your papa love you? And she gets this wicked little grin. And she'll say, this much. And I'm like, you, Kenley. And then she'll smile. She'll say, this much. This much. How much does God love you? This much. I read a while back. This is Max Locato now in a book called He Chose the Nails. When asked to describe the width of his love, Jesus stretched one hand to the right and the other to the left and had them nailed in that position so you would know that he died loving you. But isn't there a limit, he writes? Surely there has to be an end to this love. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But David the adulterer never found it. Paul the murderer never found it. Peter the liar never found it. When it came to life, they hit bottom. But when it came to God's love, they never did. And the reality of it, if you've got real faith, if I've got real faith, if we're in the family of God, you will want to let other people know about God's amazing love. Let me give you a fourth and final one. I don't even have time to go into it deeply. Wish I did. But let me go ahead and give it to you. Talk about it for three minutes and then we're done. If you're holding a boarding pass to heaven, there will be a noticeable change in your character. There will be a noticeable change in your character. See, here's a beautiful thing. Here's a beautiful thing. When we became a Christian, God loved us just the way we were. He didn't start loving us when we became a Christian. He loved us before we did. But here's the beautiful thing. He loved us before, he loved us when, but he loves us so much, he's not going to let us stay the way that we were. He's going to change us because he's got a better plan and his plan always works. Would you read with me this last verse up on the screen? Everybody read it together. Whoever is a believer in Christ is a new creation. The old way of living has disappeared. A new way of living has come into existence. And strongly connected to this new way of living is going to be visible changes that are going to be seen in your life. And it's all tied to your character. People see that you love like you've never loved before. That you're more honest. That you're more kind. They're going to see that you're more humble. They're going to just see that, you know, like Galatians, Paul wrote there, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, self-control. These, these, the fruit of the Spirit, your character, it takes on a new and different and better form. The new you is better than the old you. But here's something to be really, really concerned about. If you've received Jesus as your Savior and leader, and yet no one notices that, that's something to be concerned about. If you're just the old you is the new you, the new you is the old you, and there's not spiritual growth, character development, 
the evidence of that being true in our life, James would say, it's not real faith. It's not real faith. Because when you experience saving faith and you live in it, you'll find yourself doing the right things for the right reasons with the right kind of love. We're out of time. I want you to stand with me. I want to read one last statement. The guys are going to put it up on the screen, and then we're going to pray. Look at what Dallas Willard has written. This is a great, great statement. He says, the most important thing about you is not the things that you achieve. It is the person that you become. And I just ask you as we close, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? It's not what you achieve. It's not what you say. It is what are you becoming? Jesus said, this is Jesus now. A lot of people at the end of time are going to say, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. Jesus said, they're not getting into my kingdom. And that breaks the heart of the Father. It breaks Jesus' heart, by the way. Selective faith. It's not real faith. I say one thing, I do something else. Saving faith. And it doesn't mean we're sinless. Because God is always shaping us. And he will do that to our dying day. I have prayed this prayer so many times. I've lost track. Where I've said, I know that I cannot. God, I know that I cannot be sinless. I know that. But I do want to sin less. I do want you to grow me and shape me and form me. I want to have a boarding pass. I want to have a seat assignment. I don't want to be pacing in the gate come my final day wondering, Am I going to make this flight or not? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Would you just say, you know, Jeff, I'm, I'm just not certain. I just, I don't know. I don't know. But I want to know today. I want to receive Jesus. I want to receive Christ into my life. And then I'm going to allow him to shape me and mold me. It's not going to be like I pray a prayer and then I just do what I've always been doing. I'm going to pray this prayer with you and I'm going to, I'm going to follow the teachings of Jesus and the leadings and promptings of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to live in obedience to the Scriptures. I'm going to get into the Bible. I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to allow God to talk to me. I'm going to read things that are going to challenge me and grow me spiritually. I'm going to be faithful in church. I'm not going to be hit or miss. I'm going to, I'm going to grow. I want to become the person that God. It's not what I achieve. It is what am I becoming. And if that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at and just let me pray for you before we're done. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this moment. We thank you, God that you do have a good plan for our life. And I pray for every person in this place right here, right now, that you would just help us. Help it to be so discernible in our life. Help it to not be like we just say something and people are, aren't really seeing it. But help it to be so obvious that we just have this incredible gratitude for what you've done in our life and we're growing spiritually and we're telling everybody that we can about your great love. And that our character is being shaped and formed and molded into what you want it to be. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I love you, everybody. Have an awesome day. Happy Father's Day. See you right back here next Sunday.